The reading is from Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. It can be found on page 1062 of the Church Bibles. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's start together by praying. Father God, we thank you that we can come together as a family, as a community, that we can sing your praises together, that we can pray together, and that we can look at your word together. Help us now, personally, individually, for us all to listen to your word and to go away, ready to respond in the way that you want us to, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you a story about three young boys. These boys might well have looked to the outsider like three well-behaved, obedient and diligent children. Now, growing up, they didn't have a dishwasher, so they would be asked, reasonably, by their parents to do uh, the washing up and drying up after dinner. And they would serve with a smile most of the time. But if you were to look a little closer, you would see that these boys had devised an ingenious system. They each would do 20 items each. Plates, mugs, cups would all count as one. Cutlery only counted as half. And they would do everything in their power to avoid saucepans. That was the system. You see, these boys might, well, have looked like they were willingly serving but in reality, they were doing as little as they could possibly get away with. If, for whatever reason, after their 20 allocated items had been uh, finished and there was still something left on the draining board, well, that's where it would remain. They had done their bit. It wasn't their problem. I wonder if there's anyone who can relate to that here this evening, to those three boys. I was on holiday last week, and it was whilst... I was coming back and heading through the airport that one of the security guards caught my attention. It was quite a small airport, so the queues there were quite long. And uh, as I stood there waiting, I noticed this security guard. He was uh, 
who's had the responsibility for sweeping the metal detector over people who had set off the buzzers as you passed through. But the way he was doing it was almost laughable. Without really looking at the individual, he would sweep his metal detector vaguely in their vicinity and then wave them through. Honestly, it was, it was hard to imagine anyone looking more bored. This man was doing his job, but doing as little as he could possibly get away with. He had seemingly no sense of conviction, and he certainly didn't seem to have any sense of joy in what he was doing. And maybe tonight that's how you feel about sharing your faith and sharing what you believe as a Christian. Perhaps you've attended a church for most of your life and you've heard loads of talks about mission, loads of talks about doing evangelism and why you must share your faith. And so you dutifully do the very least you can, perhaps mumbling to your friends or colleagues that you were at church on Sunday. And that's enough. You've done your bit. And like those three boys with the washing up, there's no way you're going to do any more. Or perhaps you're like that airport security guard. Talking about what you believe as a Christian is something that just bores you. It's a chore. It's a chore that you've been told to do. There's no conviction. There's no real joy in it. It's just what the youth leader, the preacher, or your house group leader has told you something that you need to do. But is that what mission is all about? Should our evangelism be built on the foundation blocks of a reluctant sense of duty, a sense of guilt, a desire to do as little as we can possibly get away with? Well, unsurprisingly, as we look at these verses here in Luke, and please do have it in front of you, the answer is a resounding no. We're carrying on in our mini-series of resurrection appearances where we look at uh, the closing accounts of the Gospels and see how Jesus' appearances and the things that he said and did after his death and resurrection affected the people he met with. And this week, as we look at Luke, as we look at Luke chapter 24 and verse 36 to 49, we see that the disciples are sent out. They're commissioned to go on mission and to share the things that they've seen, heard and experienced. And crucially, we see here how Jesus motivates them to mission. It's not a sense of duty. It's not a sense of guilt. No, we see three things in this great commission that motivates the disciples to do mission. And they are peace, joy and assurance. Peace, joy and assurance. The passage preceding this one in Luke is the one that I uh, preached on at Easter Sunday. And if you can remember that far back, that's where we saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus, meeting with two of his followers and eventually revealing himself to them that he was indeed Jesus, risen from the dead. And we're picking up from that story straight after that point. 
Let me read the end of that account so it's fresh in our memories. Jesus has just revealed who he truly is to them, and then he's disappeared. We read in verse 33 of chapter 24. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. And it's as these two are still speaking, telling the disciples their story, that Jesus appears and is standing among them. Now, I'm not a particular fan of horror films uh, or ghost stories, but we're probably all familiar with how those kind of narratives unfold. Often the uh, characters are talking about something or looking at a picture of someone, and then suddenly that something or that someone is there in the room with them. Now, I'm not saying that what we see here in Luke is some kind of horror movie, but you can understand why the disciples are so afraid. The disciples are in hiding, scared for their lives, and Cleopas and his friend have come to them in this room, and they're telling them that they've seen Jesus, they've spoken with him. And you can see the disciples leaning in as they listen, as they listen and hear about how the man who was killed days before is now walking and talking. And as they listen, suddenly next to them is Jesus himself. Verse 37 says, they were startled and frightened. I think that's putting it quite lightly. I'm startled when I realise I've only got 7% battery left on my phone. These men were absolutely terrified. For them, this really is a ghost story. We're told that they think this man who has just appeared beside them is a ghost. And as they scream in fear and climb over each other to get away from Jesus, Jesus says, why are you troubled? Jesus challenges their shock and their fear by inviting them to determine once and for all that what has been reported is true. He says, why do doubts rise in your minds? Verse 39, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is no ghost. This is no hallucination. This is no made up story. Jesus offers himself to be seen, heard, touched, He wants to lay to rest for all time any doubts about his resurrection. And it's this real-life man, the resurrected Lord Jesus, who now sends his followers on this mission to share the good news with the world. And the first motivation for mission that we see here is peace. The first thing that Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. And this could just be read as, uh, at face value for a standard greeting, but everything about this story is as far from standard as you can get. Yes, into their time of confusion and fear, Jesus speaks peace, but it also goes much, much deeper than that. 
In another resurrection appearance that we looked at three weeks ago, at the end of John's Gospel, we see Jesus before Mary, his follower, where he tells her to say to the disciples that his father is now their father and his God is now their God. The resurrection had changed everything for them. And it's the same here in this passage. Jesus can offer peace to them because the resurrection has changed everything. We're told in Romans 3 of the position that we were once in, that there was no one righteous, no one who understands, no one who even does good, no one who seeks God. There is no peace with God. But Jesus goes to the cross and takes all that onto himself and he dies for it, but he doesn't stay dead. Wonderfully, in rising to life again, he defeats death and sin once and for all. And because of that, we can then read later in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus is now able to stand before his disciples here and say, peace be with you. Jesus says, as you cower in this room, fearing arrest, peace be with you. Where you once stood guilty before God, you now have peace with him through me. Peace be with you. And it's a peace that motivates them and us to mission because it turns our thinking completely upside down. When we feel obliged to speak about what we believe because that's just what we have to do as Christians, we can recognise that our standing before God isn't based on our efforts, our good works, or even our evangelism. You are at peace with God solely because of Jesus. And it's in knowing that, that we are freed from that sense of fearful obligation, that sense of, is what we have to do. We can share our faith because we genuinely know we have peace with God. In a hurting, broken, war-torn world, we have peace. What greater motivation for mission can there be? We're no longer enemies of God, but at peace with him. And in knowing that, we are free to go out and share the good news with those who do not yet know that peace for themselves. And from peace, we then move on to joy. Motivation for mission two is joy. We've recognised already from this true story how Jesus had let his disciples see, feel and touch his hands and his feet. This is no ghost. But it's all too much for the disciples to process. It's too good to be true, isn't it? In verse 41, we're told that they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Have you ever been presented with such good news that it's almost too good to be true? You can't even quite process it. There was a mum of two, Sue Stebbings, uh, who was getting ready for her early shift at work when she checked her lotto numbers online and found she had matched all six numbers to win the jackpot of five and a half million pounds. Sue said, I couldn't believe it. I kept looking at the screen, 
and then at my ticket and seeing the same six numbers. But I thought I must have made a mistake. I didn't trust my eyes as it was quite early in the morning. So I woke up my husband and then the children so they could check it, check that I wasn't seeing things. Even after they double-checked, I was still in shock. I simply couldn't believe it. Well, far greater and far better than any winning lottery ticket was what the disciples were met with here. Jesus, their friend, their teacher, their Lord, and now their saviour, back from the dead. It was too good to be true. For joy and amazement, they still struggled to believe it was actually true. So to confirm it beyond any doubt, Jesus asked them for something to eat. I don't know how you find uh, eating in front of other people. Personally, I uh, don't like to be watched whilst I'm eating. I find it quite difficult. But Jesus here munches down a whole fish with all the disciples closely watching on. It's not bad manners. They've just had confirmed beyond any doubt that Jesus is real. That he's really back from the dead. Flesh and bone, breathing and eating. Jesus is alive. And this And their fear and confusion now turns to joy and amazement. And it's that sense of joy that motivates them to mission. Unlike that bored and unenthused security guard at the airport, as Jesus gives his followers this great commission, the call to mission, there's no sense of obligation, no sense of having to share their faith because it's it's what is expected of them. Now, if you were to look into the book of Acts, you would see the disciples going out, unable to contain the good news that has brought them such joy. Duty and obligation don't even come into it. It's the sure knowledge that Jesus is alive and has defeated death that enables them to go out speaking, teaching, preaching, healing, and they go out joyfully, singing in chains, enduring hardships, facing prison, and worse. How could they do anything else? They've seen with their own eyes, heard with their own ears, felt with their own hands. Jesus is alive. He's risen. It's true. That is what drives these disciples. That's their motivation for mission. Pure joy that their saviour lives. And from peace and joy, we now come to assurance, our third and final motivation for mission. This coming Friday is our Pathfinders weekend away for the 11 to 14 year olds. And the build-up to that, whilst I was preparing this talk, reminded me of the weekend away we had with the youth last year. I needed an additional leader to help with the catering for the weekend away, and I uh, recruited a good friend to help out and to take up the role. And I assured him that it would be fairly simple, just helping in the kitchen uh, and doing the serving and things like that. All very straightforward not too much interaction with the young people. But that's not quite how it played out. 
that Saturday afternoon, the leader in question found himself in a boat with five of the young boys punting down the river in Oxford. It wasn't quite as straightforward as I first said it would be. I think in his good nature, Sam has just about come to forgive me for that incident. Well, if he hasn't, he's doing the same again this weekend. So he's either very trusting or else he hasn't learned his lesson. But here, as Jesus gives this great commission to his disciples, as he sends them out on mission, he doesn't hide some of the facts away from them so they'll sign on the dotted line. No, he assures them, not by giving part of the truth, but by giving them all of the truth. And wonderfully, the disciples aren't left despairing and wanting out. It's quite the opposite. They're wonderfully assured. Have a look at verse 44. Jesus assures them by explaining to them that everything that had taken place was all part of the plan. It wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't a surprise to God. It had always been plan A from the very beginning. And everything that was promised had come to pass. The wonderful promises that we see in the Old Testament, in the books of the law, the major and minor prophets, in the Psalms, they all look ahead to the Messiah, to the one who would save God's people. All these promises are met and answered in Jesus as he goes to the cross and as he rises again. I don't know whether or not you're looking forward to the general election. I could probably hazard a guess. On the 8th of June, we'll be heading to the ballot boxes yet again, and it can actually be quite hard to know what to do, to know who to vote for. And I think this is largely due to the fact that we struggle to trust our politicians. Whether it's snap elections that were promised wouldn't happen, or campaign coaches with misleading stats about how money could be spent or increased tuition fees or potential weapons of mass destruction that were never discovered. I could go on. It's not hard to see why politicians are often not trusted by the voting public when they break their promises in these ways. But it's such a different picture when it comes to God. His promises are bigger, better so much more costly, and yet through Jesus, he keeps them all. What an assurance that is, that God always keeps his promises. He is a promise-keeping God. And it's an especially great reassurance as we look at the final verse of this passage. In verse 49, we hear Jesus telling his disciples, I am going to send what my father promised and they will be clothed with power on high. Here, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, who, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, will come to them to empower them, to equip them, guide them, strengthen them, and work in incredible ways through them. At the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus leaves his disciples, but by no means are they left alone they will have God's spirit with them and in them. And what a reassurance that is. What a reassurance. 
And it's that sense of assurance, that confidence they can have in a promise-keeping God that enables the disciples, filled with the Spirit, to go out. As verse 47 says, and share this good news, starting in Jerusalem and spreading to the ends of the earth. It's peace, joy, and an assurance that God keeps his promises, that he is always, always with them and working in them. And those things, that is what motivates them to mission. And we need to look to ourselves this evening and ask, are we motivated to mission in this way too? In a few moments' time, Cypher are going to be thinking about how we can be sharing our faith, uh, how we can be doing evangelism. That's the big question we'll be tackling this evening. But before we can really get to grips with how, we need to really know the whys. Why risk rejection from your friends to talk about your faith? Why take all that time and effort to share your belief with the parents at the school gates? Why build up friendship with, friendships with work colleagues and classmates in order for you to be able to invite them to that future church event? Why do those things when it could be so costly to us? Is it because we feel obliged to? Is it because we're constantly told that's what we should do? Or is it because we've experienced that wonderful sense of peace, joy, and assurance in Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you've never actually personally gone to Jesus for forgiveness, if you don't know him as your personal saviour, then let me encourage you to really look at what's on offer here in this passage. Peace in a broken world in a new relationship with God. Joy in the reality of Jesus' resurrection assurance in the knowledge that God is with us and in us and will never break his promises. Let's go from this place tonight, allowing that to be what shapes our conversations and desires in the week ahead. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that we can meet here tonight and that we do have something to share, that we do have something in a lost, broken and confused world. We have good news. Help us, Father God, to be thinking carefully about conversations that we can have, about how we can be sharing that good news with others. But above all of that, Father God, help us to remember why we're doing that, not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but because we have personally experienced that peace, joy and assurance that only comes through a relationship with your Son. We thank you so much for him and what he offers us through the cross. Amen.